Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon and welcome to the webinar. I'm Emily Gao, director of the DeBoss Center on Religion and Civil Society. As America enters into its eighth week of self-quarantine and social distancing due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen some amazing scenes across the country from patients and medical personnel in hospitals to empty streets and empty stores. We've also seen that in some of the most famous religious landmarks around the world, that we, there are unprecedented scenes. For instance, over the weekend, as Muslims around the world began to celebrate Ramadan, the Grand Mosque in Mecca was empty. During Passover, only 10 worshipers were allowed to pray at the Western Wall. And on Good Friday, Pope Francis gave his blessing to an empty St. Peter's Square. And yet during the same time, we have seen a new interest in faith and people relying on faith. Internet searches show that the searches for prayer and for the Bible have skyrocketed around the world. And we see people of faith pouring out their love for their neighbor in new ways. In addition to the work of medical missions like Samaritan's Purse, we also see churches now serving as coronavirus testing centers. We see ministries to the homeless and to the hungry finding safe ways to distribute meals and groceries. And we see clergy and counselors finding innovative ways, often through technology, to worship, to listen, and to advise. For those who are in need of wisdom, encouragement, and fellowship during these difficult times, these are critical connections. Both the individual interest in faith and the corporate acts of service remind us of the good of religion and also of the need to protect religious freedom at all times. Times of suffering, loss, and crisis remind us that life is fragile and that there is eternity. The importance of human connection and of our dependence on God, our creator. To examine how Americans are relying on their faith now and have also done so in the past, we will hear from three incredibly distinguished speakers. And then we will have a time of question and answer from the audience using the question feature on the webinar page. Bishop Vincent Matthews Jr. is the International Missions President of the Church of God in Christ, a denomination founded in 1897. Kojic has become the largest Pentecostal denomination in the United States with 12,000 churches 
and 65 million members in 87 countries around the world. Bishop Matthews formerly served as the jurisdictional prelate of the South African First Jurisdiction and as pastor of Tabernacle Kojic in Johannesburg for 12 years, along with his wife, Sean, and their 10 children. Bishop Matthews received his doctorate in theology from North Carolina College of Theology. He has written six books and is an outspoken pro-life leader. Professor Danielle Mark is the assistant professor of political science at Villanova University, where he has taught since 2013. He is a faculty associate of the Matthew J. Ryan Center for the Study of Free Institutions and the Public Good, and he holds the rank of battalion professor in Villanova's Navy Reserve Officer Training Corps. He is a fellow of the Witherspoon Institute in Princeton, New Jersey, and he also works with the Tikva Fund in New York. He is a former chairman of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, and he received his PhD in political science from Princeton University, where he wrote his dissertation under the direction of Professor Robert George, who is the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. He also served as the chairman of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, on the President's Council of Bioethics, as a presidential appointee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, and as a member of the UNESCO World Commission on the Ethics of Science and Technology. He's a prolific author, has written several books on natural law, constitutional law, human rights and human dignity, and bioethics. He received his JD from Harvard Law School and his doctorate in philosophy from Oxford. He is also a heritage trustee and he is one of the foremost public intellectuals in the United States. And we are so delighted to have him lead our discussion today on faith and hope in crisis. Well, thank you very much, Emily. It's uh, always a great pleasure to be with you and an honor to be uh, leading uh, this webinar. I wanna thank uh, Kay James and Angela Saylor and the entire team at the Heritage Foundation, not only for uh, this opportunity, but for all the great work uh, that the Heritage uh, Foundation does on behalf of our country. And it's a great uh, uh, privilege and an honor uh, to be on this panel alongside uh, Bishop Vincent Matthews and Professor Daniel uh, Mark. Uh, Bishop Matthews is someone I admire not only for his great Christian uh, leadership uh, and for his work in the missions, but also for his very powerful and valuable uh, pro-life work. And I can't begin to say how proud I am of my uh, former student, uh, Daniel Mark, who is not only a wonderful professor, uh, for his students at Villanova University, but uh, a leading young public intellectual uh, in our country. Uh, and it's just a privilege now to be standing alongside uh, of him uh, as we confront the great issues uh, of our day, including the question of our response, especially our moral and spiritual response uh, to the COVID-19 uh, crisis. I'd like to begin uh, with a question uh, for Danielle. Uh, Danielle, is a member of the Jewish community, an Orthodox Jew, someone whose Jewish faith is quite integral to uh, who he is. Judaism, of course, is a religious tradition, but also a great intellectual uh, tradition, a great cultural tradition. And it's a tradition that is millennia uh, old. And over the course of those millennia, the Jewish people have had to face and struggle with many, many calamities and catastrophes, uh, asking themselves, uh, how did this happen? Uh, what does it mean? How do we respond to it? And that's true in the case of man-made catastrophes and also of natural uh, catastrophes. So, uh, Danielle, if I could, if I could launch things uh, with you, 
uh, drawing on the wisdom of your uh, great tradition of faith and thought, uh, what should we be asking ourselves? How should we be dealing with this crisis from a moral and spiritual vantage point? Uh, well, thank you. Thank you, Professor George. Uh, thank you for the kind words as well. Thank you to everyone uh, at Heritage um, who's uh, arranged this and who uh, have honored me by including me uh, in this great event with some other people who are much more important than I am. So it's it's really great to be here. Um, you're right, of course, that uh, the, the Jewish uh, community has uh, a long history of dealing with calamities. And uh, unfortunately, we have a lot of practice uh, in that area. Um, I saw a comment recently that I really liked by a contemporary rabbi who emailing, uh, you know, his, maybe his uh, congregants about the coronavirus uh, pandemic and got forwarded as emails due to everyone else in the world, um, that he said that uh, it's not that this pandemic makes us uh, more dependent on God than we always are. We just feel our radical dependence on God more acutely these days. And that's really something uh, that's worth keeping in mind, that it's an excellent time for us to remember how dependent we are uh, on God for everything we have. And situations like these are are unfortunate and painful reminders, but reminders nonetheless. Um, which brings me to the second theme that I think I should say um, in response to your to your very good question, um, which is that being reminded of our radical dependence on God at all times for everything we have, our our lives, our health, our livelihood, family, all the blessings um, that we have, um, that uh, we owe God a great debt at all times. Um, uh, for what he does for us, uh, for our sins. And so for the Jewish people, um, uh, Maimonides said this very famously in the Middle Ages, uh, times of trouble like these are also times for repentance, uh, to look inward at ourselves and say, we're not asking re we're not asking questions like, why is the pandemic happening? It's not that, but it's saying that anytime we have trouble, whether it's a uh, uh, personal trouble, a uh, personal health failure, or whether it's a global health failure, uh, it's an opportunity for us to ask, um, what can we do better uh, in our lives? What can we do better for God? What can we do better for our fellow human beings? Uh, and so that's a very powerful message. And you know, all the rabbis sending out their weekly messages now because nobody can gather in synagogue are always emphasizing this, that this is the time where we need to double down on prayer, on charity, on repentance and so on. And that's really where I've seen the focus nowadays in the Jewish community. So Danielle, if I understand that uh, powerful teaching, it, it's not that uh, we should be concluding that uh, this or that catastrophe is a judgment on us from God or a chastisement. That's beyond our pay grade. We can't know things like that. But uh, whatever uh, the source of it, uh, it's a time for recognizing our dependence on God and for repentance. Have I got that right? That's right. Yeah, we're not we're not assigning blame to to, our, to ourselves individually or collectively and saying uh, we're the reason this happened or so on. And nevertheless, we recognize um, that uh, times of trouble. I don't want to uh, minimize it, or I don't like to say there's a silver lining, um, but times of trouble can also be a, a benefit to us as a spur toward. You know, it's easy. Look, I mean, for most of us, certainly those of us that think. Uh, on this call, we have we have very uh, blessed lives, relatively comfortable lives. A lot of Americans, I think, are suffering. A lot of people around the world are suffering more than we are uh, right now. And in our comfortable lives, it's very easy. You know, this, the Bible tells us this: that you know, you're going to say, "This is me. I did this." Uh, and sometimes we need to, tell, you know, God to grab us by the grab us by the shoulders and shake us and say, "I know everything you have. I do for you." Um, 
and uh, and if you need a little uh, if you need a little kick in the chin to to remember to be grateful and to remember to work harder and to repent, um, get that kick in the shin. Hopefully, we repent enough, uh, often enough, that we don't deserve too hard of a kick in the shin. Bishop uh, Matthews, another uh, community that has uh, suffered more than its share of uh, catastrophes historically has been the African American uh, community from the experience of slavery first coming to these shores uh, all the way up through the present day. Uh, one of your uh, Kojic colleagues, dear friend of mine, uh, Pastor Eugene Rivers, uh, has a saying that he says is common uh, in the African American church. When, when the white people get a cold, the black folk get pneumonia. Uh, right. It's always rougher uh, on uh, on on African Americans, and yet through that experience of adversity, man-made and otherwise, through your history, the Black community has always been able, the church in particular, has always been able to draw on its faith uh, for strength and respond to the catastrophes, uh, not so much by assigning blame as to as by figuring out what are we being called to do. Uh, to help other people, to uh, uh, to rise up, to strengthen ourselves, to uh, build, to make things better. Yes, Professor George, you're right. And Eugene Rivers is right, good friend of mine also. So we share that mutually. I first want to also echo your sentiments. I thank the Heritage Foundation for this opportunity, and I'm honored to be with you and Professor Mark sharing in this conversation. And you're right, it feels like not only do we have uh, when America gets a cold, does the black community get uh, the, the flu? We have pneumonia, we have COVID. Uh, disproportionately, it is affecting us. And there was a myth that came out before uh, all this started that uh, black people were immune. Where that came from, we don't know, but now the disproportionate uh, numbers is causing for massive grief. And, and because of that, uh, it, it is important for the black church in America, as well as in the diaspora and on the continent for that matter, to mobilize. And many, many leaders uh, echo what uh, Professor Mark said. There is a time for personal repentance, introspection, reflection, um, and, and going back to the basics, recognizing that family is important, our neighbors and serving our neighbors. It's kind of like what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 9 when he was teaching, preaching and going around and then he saw, he looked at the city and they looked like uh, sheep without a shepherd. And he was grieved and he mobilized these young guys to go out and to impact other communities. Um, the, the church right now is in that same mode, prayer, fasting, but then how can we also, as we're in that repentance stage, serve? It's that duality that the black church has always been in, your personal safety, but also our personal responsibility to serve our neighbor. And how do you serve your neighbor when there are families that um, in, in urban communities that are isolated and uh, single parent families and children who don't have in poverty. And so you see churches such as the church in New York, um, a pastor where all of the food banks in Brooklyn are shut down, but he's serving hundreds of families a week. At, at, and even though that in individual church has lost I think 10 members of the church have passed due to the COVID uh, outbreak, but they're still serving. And he's saying to me, well, I can't go home and, and distance from that point. I put on a mask, I put on gloves, we continue to serve, and we believe that we're doing God's work. And it's at that risk um, that has been historic, just as you said, in passive and active resistance, navigating through the labyrinth of what we see as the challenges in our society. So. 
Um, it, is, it is an opportunity. Um, just as you said, we can't know if, if it's judgment or if it isn't, but it's an opportunity for our light to shine, for us to be able to share with others and let them know that God is real. And if you don't see God, you can see him through our hands, through our feet as we serve and impact humanity. And that is what the church is mobilizing to do. Our presiding bishop, Bishop Charles Blake, who is the head of the Church of God in Christ, he is adamant. Um, had a conversation with him just on Friday, um, saying, "Go for it." We, ha I, as as it was stated, I serve and lead missions around the world. We'll talk a bit about that. But there's a huge mission field right here in America that the church is mobilizing to impact. Yes. Uh, uh Bishop Blake, the presiding bishop, is another person I greatly admire in the Kojic uh, world, uh, not least, again, for his wonderful uh, pro-life and pro-family uh, family yes. witness. Again, he stepped up to the plate here, uh, telling the, uh, the, the church, telling uh, pastors that uh, this is not a time to hide. This is a, this is a time to serve the community. This is, this is a time right. to be the actual face of God for people who are in need. Uh, you know, we're about to celebrate um, or mark in any event an, an important anniversary. At least it's important to me. April 30th is coming up and uh, President Abraham Lincoln in the midst of the nation's greatest uh, catastrophe, of course, that terrible uh, civil war, uh, right in the middle of it, uh, he uh, called on the nation uh, to observe April 30th as a day of prayer, fasting, and uh, repentance. Uh, he even called it uh, a humiliation, humility. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, uh, if that wouldn't be a good idea for, for us uh, in all the different religious uh, communities to, uh, to observe a day when we uh, unite together for prayer, fasting, and, uh, and repentance. Um, Lincoln taught what Washington taught, that uh, nations and not just individuals are called to that sort of reflection uh, that sort of uh, repentance. Uh, again, now I guess in Lincoln's case, he really actually did think that the war was a divine uh, punishment. Again, I think judgments like that are beyond our pay grade, at least beyond mine, maybe not beyond uh, beyond Lincoln's. But it does seem to me that this is a time, not, not just as individuals, but as larger communities and even as a nation for us to be thinking about what we have done right, what we have done wrong, how we could be better people and better as a people. Danielle, does that make sense to you? Yes, I mean, it's a, Lincoln is, this was a great example in many ways. Uh, in fact, I don't remember what the date was, but a few weeks ago, the Jewish community did observe a worldwide day of fasting um, because of the coronavirus. And, and if, you know, for, for Jews, uh, fasting is, is almost always connected to repentance or always uh, the, the theme I was mentioning before. We fast not just to uh, mortify the body, um, as some other faith traditions say, but to, and, and I, I assume like other faith traditions, we fast so that the, um, the, the minimal suffering we experience in fasting, some more others than others, I guess, uh, is, is always for us a reminder that we should be repenting more. Um, so not the, uh, in our tradition, not as much suffering for its own sake, perhaps, uh, but, but certainly as, uh, as a spur to repentance and prayer, we always have special prayers that accompany uh, our regular liturgical fast days. And I thought it was very uh, beautiful and meaningful. I can't tell you what percentage of the community observed the fast day, but, but I think the, you know, the Jewish community has recognized each, each year on the, I should, uh, say that on the, on the Jewish new year, 
uh, we believe uh, that the entire world is judged, that the, the come, for the coming year, uh, the judgment is passed for everyone in the world and the entire planet. Uh, and so when we pray uh, on, the, on the Jewish New Year, uh, we're praying not just for the forgiveness of our own sins and for our good fortunes uh, in the new year, but actually uh, for the well-being of the entire world. And, uh, and this, you know, the, the fast day that was observed a few weeks ago is in exactly the same spirit that we recognize um, that we have both a uh, physical and practical responsibility for the world, but also uh, spiritual responsibility, not alone ours, one that we share perhaps, but a spiritual responsibility uh, to pray for the, for the well-being of everyone. And I thought that, that kind of a day of fasting like that was very meaningful. Bishop Matthews, um, in our current condition of extreme polarization, I guess it was to be expected that even a national catastrophe like this, a natural uh, and not man-made catastrophe, um, uh, even a catastrophe like this one um, would become politicized. And the thing I most regret really about our national response has been politicization. So many people seem to not be able to resist uh, politicizing it. Uh, here's what seems to me, and I'd be curious to hear your perspective, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty here, a lot of unpredictability. We we don't know some basic things about this virus. We, for example, don't know whether someone who's had the virus is necessarily immune. And if he or she is immune, how long that immunity lasts, just a very basic thing. We don't know when a vaccine will be available. We don't know whether this or that proposed treatment will or won't actually uh, be effective. It's too early to tell. But despite this unpredictability and despite this uncertainty, so many people, and it seems to me there's politics behind this, so many people are just pronouncing with great certitude uh, and condemning anybody who doesn't uh, uh, agree, with, uh, agree with them. And I don't think that's at all good for the body politic, and it's not helping us to get through this crisis. Now, I do think there are some things that we should be able to agree on. For example, whether this or that policy is the right one for containing the virus, flattening the curve or what, what have you, the burdens are going to fall disproportionately. They're not going to fall on all of us equally. There are going to be some people who are more badly hurt by the economic consequences and larger social consequences than others are. And that we need to take that into account not only in forming and executing policy, but in coming to grips uh, with the need to help those who are most harmed, who are disproportionately harmed. You're going to see that, of course, in the poorer, more vulnerable sec sectors of our uh, society. What's your perspective on these issues, Bishop Matthews? Yes, Professor George, um, I, I agree with you. The politicization of this crisis is, um, for lack of a better term, just disgusting um, because it shows a a a uh, a self-centered approach um, and, and, and individuals who don't care. It, it, it shows that really they don't care on either side. It's about we are your hope. We can do this. And we really don't, just as you said, we don't know what we don't know about this thing. And, and since we don't know, um, as Professor Marcus said earlier, there should be some humility. There should And there should be some really uh, bringing down of the barriers and seeking to come into a united front. How can we move together? And I think that in times of uncertainty like this, that we as faith, people of faith, must. one thing we can be certain on is that God is still real. God is still on the throne. We can put our faith and hope in him. But we also cannot 
put our faith in men and that we can see many people are showing their hands. Um, anything that comes from the other side is bad, even though they end up contradicting themselves the following week <laughs> and agreeing with the person they said that they, they have disagreed with. Um, and there are some and there are many people in our communities that we're serving who are dismayed because it seems that there are some who are disappointed that numbers of deaths are not where they want them to be and the fear is not where they want it to be and it's very it's blatant it's clear and so we recognize those things and um and and recognize that it's bigger than the left or the right is bigger than black or white latino asian native american it's bigger than it our issue right now is, I think it, it transcends nationality, ethnicity, it transcends socioeconomic background. This is a literal uh, um, international pandemic where we should have that united front. But I believe that um, I'm gonna invoke God in this one. God is exposing some individuals who have narcissistic, self-centered uh, political goals and they're, they're displaying it before us. And we recognize that these people perhaps aren't the people that should be leading us. And, and I believe that's, that's, it, that transcends again, left or right, red or blue, or wherever you are in the world. And so we have to be wise. Jesus said, we must be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. We must identify and recognize that and not forget and move forward. Well, if I can quote, quote a scripture in response to your scripture, uh, Bishop Matthews, uh, I'm struck again by the wisdom of the Bible's teaching, place not thy trust yeah. in princes. Uh, now, you know, we've got, to, we've got to work with our princes. We've got to work with our, our leaders. Um, uh, we need to be able to trust them. They need to make themselves worthy of our trust. And that's so difficult in this highly politicized situation. And no one wants to see anybody else succeed. The people on one side don't want... Yeah. President to succeed, people succeed. People on the other side don't want Governor Cuomo or Governor Newsom to to succeed. Right. And, uh, you know, it it turns into a bad thing. But I, good Lord, this is a time when you would think we would recognize we are literally, literally all in this together. If I mean, the president I'm as vulnerable as you are, you're as vulnerable as I am. Yeah, you go ahead, Bishop. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just wanted to add: if the president fails, we all fail. So we can't, we, we need the president to win. We need the Senate and the Congress to win. We don't need anyone to lose here. We That's all true. That's true of the Democratic government. We need Governor Cuomo to succeed. We need, we need Governor Cuomo to, yeah. to succeed. And, you know, it's hard because we're thinking, well, now, wait a minute. Now, if he if he does well, if he comes out of this looking good, he's going to get reelected. We don't want that to happen. It's it's hard yeah. to pull together in this politicized situation. Yeah. Daniel, do you have thoughts about this? I only do agree with what's been said. I mean, the politicization uh, has really gone too far in, in so many respects. And um, I think it's, I, I'm heartened to say that in the, bring it back to just the, the previous topic, um, that I haven't seen that a lot um, within my own religious community, um, that the emphasis has really been, and I, I strongly suspect this is true uh, for the others here as well. Um, and would love to hear about that. But um, the message has been, you know, the message coming from all of our rabbis from the synagogues has been very, very focused uh, on helping each other and kind of every, all the all the emails I get from the synagogue and within the community that I, I'm Think we're blessed that none of it has anything has it has had anything to do uh with the politics it's about you know let us know if you need help let us know if you can't help and that's where we are right now as a community well five or six thousand years of wisdom there is very helpful <laughs> Daniel. 
Uh, let me move to another topic. This this is one that's of special interest uh, to me, as you know, I'm a constitutional uh, scholar. Um, we've had questions about religious freedom and the authority of government generally here, the authority of government not only uh, when it comes to religion, but also to assembly and even in some uh, cases to speech. Um, these are important civil liberties issues, and I myself think that while we've got to do what's necessary uh, to get ourselves safely through as many people as we can safely through this pandemic, it's very important that we not allow precedents to be set that uh, will uh, weaken our uh, cherished uh, civil liberties when we come out of it. One of the issues, Bishop, has been uh, church closings. Now, um, uh, in most cases, I think what the government is aiming for is not the targeting of religion or of any particular faith, but these are uh, what are called neutral laws of general applicability. They apply across the board, any place where people uh, assemble, basketball games, uh, rock concerts, and and churches. And I, and I think that the religious communities uh, should be willing to uh, accept that. Where we have had, though, some, I think, legitimate questions are questions of, well, is it necessary to use across the country uh, as draconian, uh, as uh, the, uh, the procedures as draconian as those that need to be used in the worst afflicted, most densely populated areas? Or should religious communities be able to meet so long as they take steps, social distancing, perhaps meeting in the parking lot, perhaps just staying in the cars uh, while the preacher uh, uh, preaches and the scripture is read or the sacraments are, are uh, performed or, or what have you. The other concern that I think is legitimate, people wonder, well, are religious uh, assemblies being treated on a par with, uh, with, with other things? Are there liquor stores allowed to be open? Lotto sales establishments allowed to be open? abortion clinics allowed to be open while churches are being closed. That raises the question of whether these laws truly are general and uh, neutral. Now, I think this is a place where we have to be very careful to avoid dogmatism and extremism about these things. It, it, it seems to me that where we have a neutral, a genuinely neutral general law, which is, as we say in the constitutional law trade, necessary to protect a compelling state interest, narrowly tailored to to uh, address a compelling state interest or protect a compelling state interest, then the religious community's really got to go along with that. I mean, fair is fair, and we shouldn't ask for any special uh, privileges in, 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 in that regard. But unfair is also unfair. What's your experience with these questions, Bishop Matthews? Yeah, it's a great question. And it, it is no doubt that the gathering together of individuals in a local assembly, a local church, synagogue, or mosque, uh, builds morale, helps uh, release um, from isolation and things of that sort. However, um, the laws of social distancing, the laws of quarantine right now are for our good. So we have surrendered temporarily our constitutional right to assemble for the better good of our congregants and for those who we serve. However, there have been some exceptions such as the, in Greenville, Mississippi, where you saw the pastor who was, um, people were ticketed, each individual in the car uh, was ticketed $500 a ticket because they were sitting in a car to drive in service. And they were told that the constitution means nothing by the police officers. And the contradiction that you mentioned uh, earlier, 
um, of abortion clinics being open. We just saw in Tennessee um, the appellate court upholding the uh, opening of abortion clinics, um, um, and even though all medically unnecessary uh, uh, procedures have been suspended, and even though those women who are in abortion clinics could, uh, for their good, they could hemorrhage and all types of things, and hospitals are already stretched. However, we recognize that at this time, our presiding bishop, from the beginning of the of this pandemic, shared our all of our services must see. Somehow, though, we have been unfairly the church has the religious organizations have been unfairly targeted and scapegoated as the you know the impetus and the catalyst of this uh, pandemic across the United States because of services that were hosted. For instance, in our denomination, we had a series, had a series of conferences in um, February and March. When they met, it was within the legal limits. But still, in retrospect, people are saying, well, you guys met and you were you know, doing what you wanted to do. They were looking in the rear view mirror. We met based on local, state, and national laws. Hindsight is 2020. Hindsight <laughs> is 2020, and now we're scapegoated for it. But the church, uh, at this point, and and uh, is is has no problem with temporarily suspending our rights to assemble for the better good. Yeah, Danielle, uh, like me, you're a teacher of constitutional law and moral and political philosophy. Uh, what's your thought about this? Uh, right. Well, I, again, I agree with with what's been said. I think it's it's we're kind of seeing both sides of the coin. On one hand, the uh, the little tyrants in government are you know are popping up everywhere. So in in Los Angeles County, I believe it was they filled in the skate parks with sand, uh, which so that you know anybody skateboarding alone in a skate park you know wouldn't get coronavirus or something. And then of course that brought the dirt bikers taking advantage of the sand field. Uh, so so there are I, I think that um, the risk is is not just to religious communities, that the, the broader point that you made originally, um, that we have to safeguard our civil liberties um, to make sure they're still there when we come out of this thing. Um, and I think we can do that in part by making sure that people are still held accountable now that that proper prudence is being used. Shutting everything down just for the sake of saying we shut it down um, is a little much. I mean, the, you know, the drive, I had to pick up groceries for, for our, our young growing family this morning and uh, there everybody was in the parking lot with cars next to each other. I don't, I don't know how that differs. I've not personally been to a drive-in service. We haven't offered that in my faith yet, especially not on Saturdays. But, um, but, uh, but you know, I think, as you say, where, where things are singled out, the mayor in New York City had famously said that if he caught a, a church or a synagogue opening, he was going to shut them down forever, um, which probably goes also beyond, <laughs> beyond his authority. Um, and so it is, it is really important. It happens to me, it's interesting, and, and going along with what, um, what Bishop Matthews said, the unfortunate point of them being blamed for doing things that were correct when they did them, um, I, I've noticed, I suspect, and with the Jewish community's long history, not only of calamity, but long history of being blamed for calamities, you know, and everyone knows that Middle Ages Jews were being blamed for the plague and so on. I think the rabbis have actually gone um, beyond, uh, certainly, you know, even beyond what's required by the government in their, in their dictates to the community, uh, because there really is a fear um, that if it spreads uh, disproportionately in the Jewish community, um, there are going to be accusations of Jews either A, not listening to the government, or B, being responsible, or so on and so forth. And so they're, they're being extra strict. But, but I think, again, we need to think about prudence. I have a uh, um, friends from the neighborhood, the Frager family, dear, dear friends of ours here in the Philadelphia suburbs, and, and their son um, just got married. Uh, what was it, last week on Thursday? And there was uh, the immediate family was there. 
Uh, the rabbi was there all doing the proper social distancing and 400 people were on Zoom uh, watching the wedding. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that's that's a good thing to do. I have a, a friend who lives in uh, in Chicago, a Catholic friend, a dear friend as well. And he was supposed to be married on, on the 18th of this month. And and they can't in, in uh, his state of uh, Illinois and her state of Indiana, uh, they can't, I don't, I don't know why, they can't just do uh, two people and a priest, uh, you know, with proper social distancing. And I don't speak for any other religion as well. But I think that's the kind of thing where maybe we could find a balance that would allow religious people not to feel like they're be, being singled out when, as you say, I can go to the liquor store, not in Pennsylvania, but elsewhere in New Jersey, I can go to the supermarket, I'm at Walmart here and there, if, you know, as needed. Um, so maybe, you know, people would say, it's it's right perhaps to say that, you know, with, with these neutral laws of general applicability, um, we shouldn't be, um, sing, you know, which we, we shouldn't ask for special exceptions. Um, but if there's anything we were going to make an exception for, um, right, so people need their salvation more. People need the real presence of Christ in, in communion. They need that more than they need the next thing from Walmart. And so, um, so it should be even. And and if we were going to, there's going to be any breathing room anywhere. We think it'd be that sort of things. People who are waiting to get married, people who want to offer confession, and so on. Yeah, it, it is a little jarring for people from sacramental uh, traditions to be told that their uh, religious activities are non-essential. Uh, that yeah. that doesn't ring true. Uh, Bishop, I want to draw on your uh, wisdom here as a pastor. You have a, an obligation, a responsibility that Danielle and I uh, don't have. You have to counsel people uh, as they go uh, through this. I was speaking to the wonderful Maronite Bishop of, or by email, uh, communicating with the wonderful Maronite Bishop of, um, of New York, um, Bishop Gregory Mansour, who himself uh, is a survivor of the coronavirus. He went through three horrible weeks uh, in the hospital, um, and, he, and he made it through, and he's now back to health. And now what he's doing is having funeral services with very small numbers of people for members of his congregation, the Cathedral of Our Lady of Lebanon. Uh, what does a pastor say, Bishop Matthews, uh, to someone who's lost a beloved relative to, to COVID? Of course, you, you have to do this even when we're not having a pandemic, people do die. But in the context of this pandemic, how does this affect a pastor's role as providing pastoral care? It is excruciating. Um, I talked with actually one of our pastors on yesterday um, and sought to counsel him from Louisiana. He's lost his son who was in his 20s, um, a young man. Uh, his daughter was in the hospital. His mother-in-law two brothers-in-law and one other. They've, uh, now, all of them haven't passed, but they have the virus, and they've lost three individuals. And the, the excruciating part is that uh, you can't come and, and console them. You can't love them. There's no funerals. There's no time to come and try to strengthen them. And for many pastors, it has caused a lot of uh, stress, a lot of dismay. These uh, graveside services where, you know, you only have less 10 people or less that are there. You have to tell family members who cannot come. It has been excruciating. It's been a real challenge. And the, 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 the real challenge and the real prayer is the, the hearts and the minds of individuals. As we know, the scripture tells us that it is once appointed unto a man to die. God already, it was pre, you know, determined by God. He knows our death date, but it's still hard to wrap around in one's head to know 
uh, and it, this deep loss that they've experienced and they can't even come together and love one another. So it's, it's a huge challenge for pastors, it's a huge challenge for churches and ministries um, dealing with this. Um, we've had leaders that have passed that, that we're in collective mourning because there has not been a full mourning process in that. So it's, it's a huge challenge. It reminds me a bit when I was pastoring, it was when I was pastoring in South Africa, at that time, South Africa was the highest um, HIV uh, country on a, on a, on a, in, in the world. And um, there were so many funerals at the time where we could only have funerals on Saturdays. And I would have, I was not home on a Saturday for two years because I would have a funeral, at least one, two or three funerals every Saturday um, for two to over two years. And when that, you know, going through that was so, the stress and the weight on me, I didn't recognize how heavy that was on me. Um, and I see pastors right now, I, I share that example with pastors now to let them know that you will come through this, you can make it through, but it's something unprecedented to be able to have people that you know and love, many who are dying not from COVID maybe, maybe it's just passing from you know whatever cause of death, but you cannot honor that life, you cannot comfort the family, it's a real challenge, it's a real challenge. Yes, uh, uh, Danielle, uh, B Bishop Matthews, uh, of course, is a man of extraordinary international experience, being the leader uh, of the missions program for the Church of God in Christ, having spent so much time in Africa. Uh, you and I have both chaired the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, as Emily kindly pointed out when she uh, introduced uh, us. Uh, your thoughts must be like mine, not only with uh, you know our, our, our fellow countrymen here in the United States, but uh, the people in the cultures we uh, got to know uh, in our work trying to advance the cause of religious freedom uh, abroad under the auspices of the commission we chaired, the U.S. Commission on International uh, uh, Religious Freedom. Of course, many of those areas, which are areas where religious freedom is suppressed and where we were working hard to try to um, relieve the burdens on religious freedom for, for people, some of those are just poor areas. And they're going to be really hit hard. And some are densely populated poor areas who are being hit very hard by uh, this virus. Uh, they must be on your mind as they are on mine, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Um, I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, and there's kind of a, I mean, a double-edged sword here, I suppose. One is that groups that are uh, discriminated against on the basis of religion, and unfortunately this is true in, in too many places around the world, are already going to be groups um, that are going to be at a disadvantage in terms of their access to social services and economic opportunity and so on, because unfortunately of the way in which religious religious discrimination is so closely tied to all those um, aspects of socioeconomic exclusion and so forth. And secondarily, um, the vast powers that are being taken by governments, often appropriately, but vast powers being taken by governments in the name of beating this thing or flattening the curve or whatever it is um, that we're trying to do, uh, pose a real threat to communities um, that, uh, that are vulnerable already and communities whom the government is only looking for an excuse to oppress further. Um, so, so much that can be done. You know, never let a crisis go to waste. Well, certainly this is the kind of thing you'll see. I mean, if uh, you know, if the government um, can use this as an excuse 
um, to, to further oppress or further marginalize or perhaps point fingers, as I was talking in the historical example of the Jewish people. Um, uh, it's, a, it's really a dangerous situation for vulnerable populations that in any case would be uh, bearing the burden of this disproportionately because of their lack of access to resources and so forth. It's uh, almost like an invitation to tyrants to ramp up their tyranny and uh, concentrate their power over people and their oppression still further. It's terrible. Uh, uh, well, uh, Emily, I think we're at the point where uh, questions are coming in. Is that correct? Emily, we are not hearing you. Thank you. Thank you. So the first question we have is from Manila, Philippines. Because of the lockdowns, public religious celebrations like the mass are on hold. Do you think this negatively affects believers? Will we see less people in churches and synagogues after the crisis? Well, that's a $64,000 question, as we used to say. Uh, yeah. Uh, what will be the the impact? Uh, are, are some people going to get out of the habit of going to church and just not return? Or will people who haven't been in the habit of going to church suddenly begin seeing some, some value or some point uh, to worshiping God in the context of, uh, of uh, communal uh, worship? Uh, Bishop uh, Matthews, what's your perspective on that one? Um, first, I would love to say I love the Philippines. I was just last year in Angel City and a few other places in the Philippines. So God bless the, the, the person who asked the question from the Philippines. I'm optimistic that, um, I, I think Professor Mark started off saying that, that we're more uh, aware of our reliance on God now than we previously were before this pandemic. All the distractions have been removed. ESPN is gone. Uh, uh, and all of the other distractions, no movie theaters, all of these things are, are removed. I'm optimistic, even though there are people who will um, be a, a bit hesitant about going anywhere publicly, I believe we're at the cusp of one of the greatest revivals of all time. There was an article in the New York Times um, that alluded to that, but I believe that there's a, there's a heightened interest in faith, there's a heightened interest in prayer, there's a heightened interest in what's going on. Is this the end times? And while the churches and uh, synagogues and mosques are closed now, I believe those who um, are forward thinking and are really seeking to uh, bring hope in life, that there will be an influx of individuals who will find hope in, in, in a faith in God. As my uh, late mother-in-law used to say, from your mouth to God's ears, Bishop, I hope, uh, I hope that, uh, that, that hope is indicated. Yeah, yeah, I mean, oh, Danielle, did you want to come in on that one? I'll just weigh in briefly. I think, I mean, I think there is possibly people, you know, there's the risk you'll say, well, uh, this is a non-essential activity. I, uh, I guess I don't really need to be a mass every week. They just, they let me go when the, when the going got tough. <laughs> and on the other hand, I think, I think people will miss it. Uh, I hope. Uh, I also think I wanted to thank Bishop Matthews at the very beginning, the, the, the beautiful witness of that pastor in Brooklyn. I mean, I hope people, I hope people will see that and say, oh, there is something here I better find out some more about. I mean, that's part of the, the mission work, of course, sir, as, as you said so well about serving people being out there. I think that's, I mean, I think it's amazing that that I get, I don't know how many people outside the community would, you know, would, would know this and realize, but I get an email, as I said, from the synagogue every week that says, if you need something, contact us here. 
I mean, that's if I were not part of, you know, a, a tightly knit religious community, I, I don't know where I where would I start? Like, I mean, I should you can I guess you can wait on a, a bread line several miles long, and I, I hope those are working for people too. But isn't it absolutely remarkable that you know, thank God my family's in a position to be on the giving end, not the receiving end. We're young, we're healthy right now. But the fact that I've got a community that's instantly mobilized uh, to be there, ready. Uh, to meet our needs is amazing, and I think that and that that could only be possible by having a thick community in place beforehand. Um, and so I hope not just because people miss their weekly worship service, uh, but because people say um, that being part of a religious community is something like no other, taking care of each other, taking care of others in a way that no other institution can do. Um, and I, I hope that will make an impression. Uh, in my own community, the Catholic uh, community, I've been uh, struck by how this crisis has revealed the hunger people do have for the sacraments. Uh, and there are many Catholics who are uh, petitioning, urging uh, their bishops, their leadership, uh, to find ways to make the sacraments available to people. Now, now these Catholics are, are not people who are saying just uh, go back to normal, don't worry about the, the virus, don't worry about social distancing. Uh, these are by and large uh, people who realize that we're going to have to take some steps here, that things can't be just the way they are, that we're going to have difficulties and challenges, and we're going to have to um, uh, restrain ourselves from being too near each other in congregational worship. But they're asking the bishops to find ways, find ways consistent with public health, public safety, to make sure, especially those at the point of death. Bishop McKinney, uh, Bishop Matthew, so many people are dying alone right now. Yeah. And and yeah. that's a terrible thing. I mean, not only are their families not there, the clergy are not there. Those, again, from sacramental traditions uh, are dying sometimes without the benefit of what we call the last rites, uh, the anointing of the, the sick. Um, this is a terrible thing. And it seems to me we can find ways to minimize the number of people who are in that situation. Surely that's reasonable. Yeah, you're right. It, it, it is one of the great tragedies of this uh, pandemic is so many people are isolated and alone in hospitals. We've and and the church has been forced to catch up on technology. <laughs> I think we're behind the curve. Many are catching up on technology, but uh, you're right. There has to be a way. I actually made the mistake of going and showing my credential card and saying I'm a bishop and let me in. There was no getting into the hospitals, and and I didn't, I, you know, I was willing to take the risk to go in and pray with and give uh, what you call the last rites, and and I believe that is part that isolation is part of the catalyst to I believe that will lead to this crescendo, this great outbreak of fervor and coming to the church, because just as uh, Professor Marcus said, no one can replicate duplicate what your what your faith leaders and what the faith community can do a true faith community and the love the fellowship the interaction uh will strengthen and right now when there's so many challenges that are going on i believe there's in the philippines uh in africa asia europe united states uh, north america south america there's going to be i believe a thrust coming to faith emily give us another question Here's the next question. Given your religious traditions, how do you view the responses to the allocation of scarce resources? For some, for example, some countries like Italy have implemented guidelines excluding the elderly 
from receiving mechanical ventilators? Uh, yes, I'm going to begin myself on this one and, and then ask uh, Professor Mark and uh, Bishop Matthews to, uh, to weigh in. Uh, this is a matter on which I have very strong opinions. Uh, I, I've thought about it and I strongly feel that it is imperative that we avoid any discriminatory treatment here, any invidious discrimination. That is discrimination based on age, for example, or discrimination based on disabilities. In situations like this, there will always be the temptation. We human beings, fall, fallen, frail, fallible creatures that we are, is always a temptation to begin valuing some lives more than others. Now, people are different in lots of ways. Some people are handsomer or prettier. Some people are smarter. Uh, some people are stronger. Some people are more talented. Some people are more intelligent. There are these human differences, and we, uh, we take those into account. But in fundamental worth and dignity, we are equal, that is equal at the most basic level, so that a, a child with Down syndrome is every bit the moral equal of a uh, great scientist or a great athlete. And it's very bad, very wrong to discriminate on the basis of something like disability, to treat that Down syndrome child as less and having a life not as worth living as the great athlete or the great scientist. Uh, Daniel? Sorry about that. <laughs> Got me on the last one. Uh, I, yes, I agree. You and I signed a statement about that recently, uh, addressing this very topic. It's it's online for those who want to see. Uh, I think it's very important that we we already unfortunately have a tendency um, in our society, in our culture, uh, to devalue the lives of the elderly. Uh, in my own tradition, in the Jewish in the Jewish tradition. Uh, esteeming uh, our elders is, is an extremely important value. Um, we, uh, at, when we left Egypt uh, many thousands of years ago, uh, we rejected their uh, worship of youth um, for instead an appreciation of age and of wisdom. Uh, and uh, anything that would, uh, you know, our, our site is already famous for warehousing old people in, uh, in nursing homes uh, instead of taking care of them into their older age and and uh, and anything we can do in our society to to avoid contributing further to that uh, ethos to that ethic um, of treating older people like their lives are worth less uh, would be important to avoid so um, so I agree with you Fish Matthews yeah unfortunately one of the great sins of our modern time is our ethics from a secular utilitarian perspective that um, looks at the utility of individuals, their worth, and, and quantifies it based on whatever benchmarks that we set. Hence, um, it, it, I, I just want to resonate everything that you have said. Hence, um, there are many people in our community who are afraid to go to the hospital because they yeah. feel like they will be uh, marginalized. They're, they're, they're afraid to take a COVID test or to take any kind of test or to go to any kind of that. It, 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 it inherently breeds distrust. And so it should be vehemently rejected. And, and um, all human life uh, from the womb to the tomb is valuable. Before born until we're gone, all human life is valuable. And once we dehumanize um, any individuals from the womb to the tomb, we've dehumanized all of us. Amen. Emily, next question. Well, I think um, 
Actually, we may have to wrap it up here um, because we've almost reached the end of the hour. But I think that is a wonderful place to wrap up the conversation for now on the dignity and the preciousness of human life. And you, you've each said it so eloquently that lives are precious. Every life is precious from the womb to the tomb. So I want to thank each of you for sharing this time with us and helping to elevate our discussion about faith and hope during this time of crisis. I want to also point our audience to a couple of other heritage resources. Um, one that I think is very relevant to the last question is the webinar that Professor George participated in on April 20th, and that was on bioethics during the pandemic. I'd also like to share with our audience the website heritage.org. We are keeping a database there called Faith and Civil Society During COVID-19, where we are collecting stories about faith-based aid to people who are affected by the coronavirus, affected in their health, affected in their finances, and also the ways that religious communities are providing assistance to people through mental health, emotional health, and spiritual health resources. And we always welcome more stories about these um, great things that religious communities are doing. So please feel free to contact us with those. Lastly, I want to just thank all of the people behind the scenes who made today's event possible and encourage everyone on the um, audience to continue to tune into the Heritage website for further announcements. We will be having more uh, webinars on the, the theme of faith during the coronavirus. And again, let me thank each of our speakers, Bishop Matthews, Professor Mark, and Professor George for this incredible, um, incredibly enlightening and encouraging discussion about faith and hope during the pandemic. Thank you, Emily. Uh, God thank bless you. you and God bless everyone listening uh, in. Uh, many thanks to all. <laughs>